Welcome back to the Anglo-Boer War Podcast with me, your host, Des Latham. This week, we'll track a Londoner who rode with Remington's Tigers. Then there'll be a quick story about a Maori who arrived in South Africa during the war to fight, but also carried a violin. At the same time, information began to circulate about the British concentration camps around this time, where tens of thousands of Boer women and children were interned, and the information was worrying. Slowly, the numbers began to be squeezed out of the British government. There were over 21,000 people in Transvaal camps by April, 16,680 in the Orange River colony, and over 2,500 in Natal. The number of deaths was equally difficult to discover because of censorship, yet these numbers were leaking out, and they were also not good news for those who believed this war was honourable. Nor was it clear if the figures included black inmates. We know now it did not. A second strategy launched along with the concentration camps, though, was Lord Kitchener's policy of great drives, some over 80 kilometres long. These were his strategy to cope with the guerrillas and finish the war. He understood that he could not catch or destroy the remaining commandos without placing strict limits on their freedom of movement before sweeping them from the felt. This policy, though, was not as clinical in practice as it sounded in theory. The sweeps were often accompanied by looting as well as destruction. Some of the British officers who had been based in South Africa for more than 18 months fighting the Boers had run out of patience and used these drives as an excuse to loot. For some of the soldiers under their command, it became a kind of sport. Writing at the time, Captain L. March Phillips who was an officer in the Remington Guards or Remington Tigers, as they were known, began to have serious doubts about the nature of these felt-clearing operations. The Tigers had been created by Major Mike Remington, and they were known as Remington's Tigers due to the leopard-skin hatbands worn on their hats. They were also known as the Night Cats because of their many night marches and stealth. In January 1901, the force was reorganized as Demant's Horse under Major Frederick Demant, Remington's second-in-command, but many continued to call this feared unit the Remington's Tigers. Captain Phillips looked on exasperated at times during the great drives of this war, March through September 1901. In one of his letters, he writes about the British soldier, who we know as Tommy Atkins. The generic title Tommy Atkins was used from at least 1743. There's a great deal of debate about the exact origin of the title, which has been used as the generic name for a common British soldier for many, many years. While the origin of the term is debated, a letter sent from Jamaica about a mutiny amongst the troops in 1743 includes the line, Except for those from North America, ye Marines and Tommy Atkins behaved splendidly. However, Our letter-writing Captain Phillips is not as enamoured by Tommy Atkins during the great drives across the felt in 1901. Looting is one of his perpetual joys, he writes. Not merely looting for profit, but looting for the sheer fun of the destruction, tearing down pictures to kick their boots through them, smashing furniture for fun of smashing it, and maybe dressing up in women's clothes to finish with, and dancing among the ruins they have made. To pick up a good heavy stone and send it wallop through the works of a piano is a great moment for Tommy. He also had a warning for his own leadership as he took part in these drives. Carried on in a country like this, where a man on horseback is like a bird in the air, and by people so individually keen as the Boers, the present kind of war may go on indefinitely. After all, it is the sort of war the Boers understand best. 
This is like all other guerrilla wars. The local population always has the upper hand over the long term. Tactically, there will be success for the conventional soldier. However, strategically, the very idea that destroying the land will lead to a victory is somewhat counterintuitive. Like dropping Agent Orange on rice paddies and jungles, eventually the vegetation grows back, but the sentiment shifts irrevocably against the army conducting itself in this manner. Phillips writes, The big battle war is a matter of science, which he had in a great measure to be instructed in, but this is a war which the natural independence of his own character and self-reliant habits make natural to him. The war, now that it has become a matter of individuals, is exciting all its old enthusiasm again, and the burghers are up in arms in every district in the country. Fighting in their own country, the Boers have one advantage over us, which is their salvation. They can disperse in flight, but we cannot disperse in pursuit. That's a brilliant way to sum up the situation, don't you think? Even now. As one of the guides trying to capture Boer General Christian de Vint, Phillips was in the thick of the fighting. He explains the general process of trying to capture a foe that seems to disappear into the landscape. You make a dash for a copy, probably uncertain if it is held or not. The clucking of the old Morses at long range warns you that it is, and a few bullets kick the dust up. The squadrons swing to the right to flank the copy, and the fire gets hotter and the whistle of bullets sharper and closer. Suddenly the welcome report of a gun, followed by a second one, sounds behind you, and next instant the rush of the quick-coming shells is heard overhead. Then the squadron goes headlong for the copy. The Boers knew this was the technique being used across the countryside, and if you remember, I described what was happening from the Boer point of view in many of the previous podcasts. As with the coming First World War, the British soldier was relying more and more on their powerful artillery to pummel the copies before moving in to push the Boer commanders off their high ground. There's always a need to employ a long-range method in clearing the ground ahead of organised companies of troops. In modern warfare, it's the drone attack or the use of ground support by highly trained aviation units or a cruise missile in extreme circumstances. Yeah, during the Anglo-Boer War, it was the skilled artillery that was making all the difference, at least in firefights and skirmishes. Phillips explains, The ponies tear along, mad with excitement, their hooves thundering on the hard ground. The men grip their loaded carbines with their right hands, not one that won't be first if he can. There go the shells, there is a little shout of approval. One bursts right among the rocks at the top of the kopje in a puff of white smoke, the other halfway down, raising a great cloud of dust. The moors of fire ceases, as if by magic, and the next instant the racing squadron has reached the rise. As these men crest the summit of the kopje, in the distance they see their quarry riding away. Yonder the enemy go, bundling along a rough track not five hundred yards away, half seen through swirling dust. The men fling themselves down, some tearing a handful of cartridges from their bandoliers to have handy and settle their carbines on the rocks. Crack goes the first shot, and at the sound, as at a signal, The convoy of fleeing boers shakes out and scatters over the felt. The fire quickens rapidly as the carbines come into action. Every boer, as he rides off you can see through the glasses, is pursued and attended by little dust puffs that tell you where the bullets strike. Surely they can't be going to get off scot-free. Take your time, men. Now do take your time, insists our captain. A thousand yards and aim well ahead. And now at last, 
It is seen with glee that something is the matter with the man on the white horse. Horse, is it, or man? Both, apparently. In that incident, the man lay across the horse's neck, which slowed to a walk. But frustratingly for Phillips, even when two other men turned back to help the injured Boer, the distance was too great to be effective. Every carbine is on them. Another Boer jumps off and lies down, and the report of his rifle reaches us at the same instant that a bullet whistles overhead. No one attends to him. Every man is blazing away at the little slow-moving group of three, a good mark even at this distance, but it is not to be. Though the dust spots all around them hit them, we can't, and at last, as they move away in the distance, the last reluctant shot is fired, and we give up. As with all drives, the Remington guides, or tigers, eventually catch up with some of the Boers who are hiding in a nearby farmhouse. On this particular occasion, we capture one of the Boers a little further on, hidden in the farm garden, his horse having been shot, though we did not notice it. This accounts for two, anyway, which is about what we expect, and we proceed good-naturedly to help the farm people out with some of their furniture before burning the house down. His unit is particularly effective at destroying property as they move through the Free State. Kronstadt, Lindley, Helbron, Frankfurt has been our round so far. We now turn westward along the south of the Vaal. Farm burning goes merrily on, and our course through the country is marked as in prehistoric ages by pillars of smoke by day and fire by night. We usually burn from six to a dozen farms a day, these being about all that in the sparsely inhabited country we encounter. There's a simple logic to the strategy. And there's no reason to hold any formal inquiry before torching the farm. Phillips is clear about this. I do not gather that any special reason or cause is alleged or proved against the farms burnt. If Boers have used the farm, if the owner is on commando, if the line within a certain distance has been blown up, or even if there are Boers in the neighbourhood who persist in fighting, these are some of the reasons. The elderly, women and children, and all black workers are driven off the farm and ordered into one of the notorious concentration camps. Phillips is clearly trying to make sense of it all. Of course, the people living on the farms have no say in these matters, he writes, and are quite powerless to interfere with the plans of the fighting Boers. Anyway, we found that one reason or another generally covers pretty nearly every farm we come to, and so, to save trouble, we burn the lot without inquiry, unless indeed, which sometimes happens, some names are given in before marching in the morning of farms to be spared. The men, of course, are not on the farm. They are away, leaving their families. Only the women left, Phillips observes. Of these, there are often three or four generations, grandmother, mother, and family of girls. The boys over 13 or 14 are usually fighting with their papas. The people are disconcertingly like English, especially the girls and children, fair and big and healthy looking. These folk we invite out onto the felt or into the little garden in front where they huddle together in their cotton frocks and big cotton sunbonnets, while our men set fire to their house. Sometimes they entreat that it may be spared, and once or twice, in an agony of rage, they have invoked curses on our heads, but this is quite the exception. As a rule, they make no sign, and simply look on and say nothing. 
One young woman in a farm yesterday, which I think she had not started life long in, went into a fit of hysterics when she saw the flames breaking out and finally fainted away. Captain Phillips writes that his camera was broken or he would have filmed the carnage, remarking that the houses are dry and burn well. The fire bursts out of windows and doors with a loud roaring and black volumes of smoke roll overhead. Standing round are a dozen or two of men holding horses. The women in a little group cling together, comforting each other or hiding their faces in each other's laps. All while in the background, some of the Tommies are seen chasing poultry, flinging stones at them. Phillips describes in great length how these soldiers, in a kind of sport, throw themselves prostrate on maimed chickens and ducks, whose melancholy squawks fill the air. Further off still, herds and flocks of horses are being collected and driven off, while, on the top of the nearest high ground, a party of men, rifles in hand, guard against a surprise from the enemy, a few of whom can generally be seen in the distance, watching the destruction of their homes. Hatred was building up between the Boers and the British, which was to fester for the next century, and even today amongst hardliners on both sides. Captain Phillips has a good ear and writes clearly. He is in awe of the Boer women in particular, writing, One hears the women talk. Their ideas about the war are peculiar, for they all maintain that they will succeed in the long run in asserting their independence and seem to think that things are going quite satisfactorily for them. Of course we shall go in fighting, they say, quite with surprise. How long? Oh, as long as may be necessary, till you go away. Household after household is destroyed, the inhabitants marched to the nearest railway or taken by ox wagon to the concentration camps. It is curious coming to household after household and finding the whole lot of them, women and children, so unanimous, so agreed in the spirit in which they face their afflictions, says Captain Phillips. Husbands and sons in the hill fighting, homes in the valley blazing, and they sitting and watching it all, almost always, with the same fortitude, the same patience, and the same resolve. I am impressed, for I have never seen anything of the sort before. It is not often in these days that you see one big, simple, primitive instinct, like love of country, acting on a whole people at once. While Phillips seems to understand the significance of what he's doing, other officers are not as candid. They regard the Boers as animals to be exterminated and say so. In the midst of war, a guerrilla war, that's always going to be a defining line between the combatants. Their respect for each other, or the dehumanizing change where rape, murder and ethnic cleansing take over, where the long-term effect of fighting a war in the middle of women and children changes the soldier into a marauding animal. As we've seen from this war, often it's a localized matter. From one unit to the next, whether Boer or British, the use of revenge leads to war crimes. Captain Phillips survived the war and returned home to London, where he wrote his memoirs called Phillips with Remington. He fought throughout the war and, like many others, was in two minds about the entire conflict. He notes at the end, During the early part of the war, Many things happened that were splendid to see and gave me much pleasure to write about. During the later stages, nothing particularly splendid occurred. Our men were in their way fine, but some things that happened were, as we say, regrettable. There is another historical echo here. Through the 20th century, there have been wars fought with the soldiers returned to a cacophony of silence, or even worse, opprobrium. 
The American troops who fought in Vietnam returned to a society that turned its back on them. A similar thing can be said of the Americans who fought and continue to fight in Afghanistan and those who returned from Iraq. They appear to have been forgotten. All the Russians who fought in Afghanistan after the invasion of 1979, they've also suffered as their country tries to forget or at least revise their actions. But back to South Africa, it's late April 1901. Also on these drives were thousands of troops from the colonies. New Zealand, for example, sent 10 contingents of mounted rifles to fight in South Africa. More than 6,500 men sailed for the country, along with doctors, nurses, veterinary surgeons, and about 20 school teachers. 71 New Zealanders were killed in action or died of wounds, with another 159 dying in accidents or from disease, and they fought all the way through until the end in March 1902. It was the New Zealanders' success in battle that fostered the idea that they were natural soldiers who needed little training to fight well. This would lead to unfortunate decisions by the British Army commanders during the First World War. The country, as I mentioned before, also sent a number of Maori trackers. One of these was Walter Callaway, also known as Wata Te Wahaua, excuse my pronunciation, who fought in the Anglo-Boer War from 1899 to 1902, despite a British edict that colonial natives were to take no part in a white man's war. Born in 1872, Callaway listed his previous work as a gold miner and logger. A month before war was declared in October 1899, New Zealand was already gathering volunteers. Callaway's anglicised name saw him and just one other Maori at that stage, called William Pitt, make it into the 215-strong first New Zealand contingent. That was the first to leave from Wellington to South Africa. He did not hide the fact that he was Maori and apparently composed a war cry for his unit, a bit like the modern version of the haka which the all-black rugby team performs. Callaway called his war cry, Be strong, New Zealand, fight bravely for your queen forever and ever. Eventually, the whole ship was yelling it on their way out from the wharf. He also took his violin to the Anglo-Boer War, according to the New Zealand Herald newspaper. Callaway survived the war after two tours of duty and eventually returned home. In 2010, Mark Dwight published a book about him called Walter Callaway, a Maori warrior of the Boer War. We're at the close of summer, the stark winds of May growing colder across the felt. Lord Kitchener has been in command now for more than six months. His first need of a mounted force had gradually been met by the British Army. Horses were arriving at around 10,000 per month, and Kitchener had 240,000 men in the region. He was determined to drive the rest of the Boers into defeat, but the concentration camp death toll was now a matter of public interest in Britain. This was to break the resolve of some to continue supporting the war, and as we'll hear next week, Emily Hophouse had arrived back in England at the end of April 1901 after personally viewing the condition of the camps, and she was to cause a great deal of trouble. We'll drop anchor now. Please try and rate the podcast on iTunes if you can. I've loaded a couple of new photographs on our website, abwarpodcast.com. Or you can send me a direct message if you've got any ideas about topics or anything else you want to chat about. That's on Twitter, at Des Latham. Until next week, goodbye. <laughs> O bring me terug naar die Oud-Transvaal, daar waar my sari woon, daar onder in die mil is by die groen door een boom.